you're uh, <laughs> okay you're listening to interzone pod my name is gareth jelly i'm the editor of interzone and interzone digital uh, today i'm talking to nick lowe uh, author of the the long-running mutant popcorn series of uh, film criticism and uh yeah we have a lot to talk about uh, hi nick thanks for thanks for coming on fantastic to be back and uh we do indeed have a huge amount to talk about we um we, we we've been talking a little bit earlier and i i, I yeah we it's kind of 2023 has been has, has been a really sort of unexpectedly rich year for for, for science fiction cinema right Absolutely. I mean, this was the year, uh, I think I said this in the last column, uh, uh, that uh, supposedly uh, Hollywood died. Um, uh, you know, we had this this perfect storm of, uh, of, of two strikes, lots of key features like uh, the Dune sequel getting kicked into 2024. The uh, streaming uh, model was starting to take on water. Uh, particularly at Disney, who had a uh, generally pretty uh, uh, terrible year uh, uh, on on a number of fronts, and were uh, uh, forced into a big rethink of their business strategy. We were getting films uh, that were already completed dumped and written off uh, at Warner's, and yet when you look back on the year, it's hard to. Uh, think of any year which has had so many absolutely, uh, you know, f- uh, five star plus films, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of them have come from out of the blue, from the international um, f- world, from the indie sector, and occasionally we've had uh, big studio numbers which have completely. Uh, blown the doors off. I mean, nobody saw Barbenheimer coming. Uh, they saw mm-hmm. uh, a film, two two rather risky looking films that, uh, I mean, <clears throat> I think we can look back on and say neither of them was sort of uh, f- entirely there, but that actually uh, turned out to be a, a box office phenomenon for a generation. Um, so uh, an amazing year. I mean, it's 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 kind of a little... Uh, 1982 all over again <laughs> and um for, for for listeners who maybe don't remember 1982 uh yeah what was what do you most remember from that year well, that was the year. Uh, I mean, it was. It would have been a good year on all fronts, but uh, we remember it as the year of the Thing, uh, Blade Runner, Wrath of Khan was that year, and of course the one that uh, completely changed the world was ET. Um, and uh, at the time, we thought, "Oh, this is just uh, another." A uh, typical year for SF. Some of those films did not do well at the box office, but um, uh, particularly, you know, The Thing and Blade Runner uh, were were uh, they didn't exactly tank. They were certainly seen as as as, as underperforming, and they are not absolutely iconic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting which films kind of come back and are remembered, and which ones aren't for sure. 
Yeah, I always get it wrong. Um, you know, I, n- I never spot the classics when they happen. <laughs> I remember watching <laughs> The Princess Bride and thinking, uh, I think I've talked about this with you, uh, and thinking, uh, this, is no- this, is, this is not going to do well. It's only uh, uh, sort of 30% as good as the book, which I think is probably still true. But nevertheless, people, um, you know, 30% as good as the, the book, The Princess Bride, is pretty good. Um, and, uh, you know, it's... It, has complete. I mean, I don't know if anyone even reads the novel. Uh, no, they should because it's great. But uh, but the film has now become the iconic version of that story. So, and you know, at the time, uh, uh, <laughs> everyone who was a fan of the book think, of course, this is completely unfilmable. It's all dependent on. Uh, purely textual devices um, mm-hmm. and uh, it's interesting to I've been thinking about that a lot while thinking about poor things which uh, is one of the films of the year perhaps the film of the year um, uh, and again is a you know is a film of an unfilmable novel which um, whose unfilmability is all about the novelisticness of it and the the, the the textiness of it but it's quite clear already that it's even though I mean, uh, it hasn't really had much in the way of public screenings there was one there were, uh, it's done the festival circuit there was uh, there was one in London uh, uh, last night an audience screening but uh, it still hasn't had a, uh, a proper release and that is clearly going to clean up and uh, become uh, I mean unfortunately I think to displace the, uh, the the novel we'll be talking about that one later yeah yeah we'll talk about um, that one soon. Um, I was just looking at 1982, and it was also Tron. Well, Tron, of course, that was the other one I've forgotten. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it, it, it is the benchmark year in SS uh, film. Uh, the 1999 is often um, uh, banded as a competitor, uh, hmm. uh, uh, and you know, was, was was obviously an important year. But uh, but 82 is still the one to beat. And, and in fairness, I don't think we've got five films that quite look like uh, E.T., Blade Runner, Tron, uh, the, the Thing, Wrath of Khan. Um, but uh, I think we've probably got five films that are as good as those five. And, and and we do have a Shatner link later. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe that's the... Well, yeah. Maybe that's the segue. All right, let's do it. From Wrath of Khan. To um to to your cutting room floor for Interzone two nine six. Yes, well, two nine six was uh, <laughs> one of uh, we had this unexpected end of year bulge, largely from the festival round. A lot of the stuff isn't out yet, and mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, in some cases hasn't uh, got distributors. But the the the, the, the there was. Uh, there was a, an unexpectedly huge amount of material for uh, for two nine six, and although I really thought uh, I, I wasn't going to leave anything on the cutting room floor, there were as usual three films that just didn't fit either because their adjacency to genre wasn't quite uh, a fit for our usual coverage, or simply because they they <laughs> my usual thing they would have taken too long to explain, and a lot of the explanation wouldn't really have been about the film. But one of them, uh, an old friend of this podcast, actually, because um, uh, poor guy, his uh, uh, his last film also made the cutting room floor, um, is the great Canadian uh, fan uh, uh, documentarist uh, Alexandre Philippe, um, latest uh, uh, feature, You Can Call Me Bill, which is... 
uh, an interview doc with William Shatner. Um, his last uh, his last feature, of course, was Lynch Oz, which we talked about on, I think, the very first Interzone podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, he has he's carved out a, a niche for himself as this master of the fan documentary. So uh, many people will know his uh, memory, the, Oli- uh, the origins of Alien. Um, and he has a he has a signature. Um, uh, he's he's an absolute master of uh, fair use archive footage, um, and doing these quite low budget documentary features that are nevertheless absolutely kind of um, uh, 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 stuffed with astounding clips in br- brilliantly montage, brilliantly fitted to the story uh, the, 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 that he's telling. Um, uh, there's a kind of Adam Curtis level of expertise with uh, archive uh, footage. And uh, the thing about the, oh, sorry, the, so his Shatner film, his Shatner doc is called You Can Call Me Bill, which uh, 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 the, the really nerdy people will recognize as his entrance line from his cameo on the big Bang Theory, and it's born of sitting Shatner down for three days and uh, in a quite a cleverly planned way, sort of lighting him from different angles according to the different themes. Like a lot of his films, it's divided into chapters, uh, which were part of the initial um, interview structure. And it's uh, getting Shatner to talk about being Shatner. Um, And uh, a lot of what makes it uh, a a remarkable film is not really to do with what one would expect of a Shatner uh, documentary. It's about being an actor um, in the, I think it's fair to say, very late stages of a very long career, um, a statistic that uh, just blows your head off um, uh, to contemplate is that he has been acting for 86 years. And uh, uh, and he's still extremely articulate and extremely active. You know, he's still doing kind of four um, engagements a day. Um, he does not stop. And there is something rather strange about that that life and that person. He's uh, uh, an immensely larger-than-life character uh, who is very serious about a lot of things, including um, horses and environmental causes. Um, But the thing that makes it is this uh, Philippian uh, mastery of archive footage. So very early on, you think, well, this is not like his other films. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a kind of talking head uh, picture about a. <laughs> becomes increasingly clear he's quite a strange man. But then you get this montage of um, Shatner death scenes spanning the decades of his career, and you think, okay, this is this is our guy again. I I this is the directorial stamp uh, put on it. And it's absolutely wonderful. It's a, it's a treat uh, uh, to watch and uh, uh, goes to some really quite dark places. There was one day when he'd had a bad morning on his horse and uh, that's the 
um, the day when he's talking in very frank ways about how lonely it is being someone who spends his life basically performing, being other people, being a different version of himself for the public and how he, uh, at least on that day, felt he'd never really had any friends, um, uh, despite being this incredibly gregarious uh, 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 performer. So an absolute must-watch. I don't know if it's got distribution yet, but uh, that was one I saw at the London Film Festival, which had something like 20 SF films. It was an extraordinary year for this kind of uh, festival-friendly um, SF adjacent uh, uh, stuff, but uh, uh, I mean everything he, uh, Philippe does is uh, unmissable, and this was a real—I uh, mean, both a departure for him and actually a great kind of showcase for taking the skills he already has and applying them to a very different kind of film. Mm, yeah, and and the well, the, the Lynch Oz um, pod is is definitely worth a listen, but the the film most importantly is just amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I mean, everything he does is fantastic. Uh, uh, he did a, doc a documentary about uh, about Klingon. Um, oh. uh, so I think Shatner has, has uh, or, or, or uh, Trek fandom has been on his radar for a long time, and uh, this was uh, and, and, and Shatner is extremely cooperative uh, in the interviews. He didn't really try to exercise any kind of control. It's not. Uh, it's not spun. It's not. I mean, he 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 executive produced it, but uh, he didn't really try to uh, uh, intervene in. Uh, in the narrative, um, and it's uh, um, uh, you know, it is a, a terrific documentary just about being an actor in um, uh, with, with a very very long career uh, crossing genres. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Did did you see the the video? Uh, there was a video going around of, of he'd just gone in. Shatner had just come back from space. Yes, that's in the that's in the film. Yeah, and th there was a sort of there was a, a clip going around of Bezos um, comes over and Shatner sort of starts to talk very sort of you know pr you know yeah. very emotionally about you know how how he felt and then and then bezos just can't can't pay attention turns off to the side sort of shouts like where's the champagne where's the champagne completely and then shatner just sort of you can see his face kind of drop and he's not going to get to say what he wanted to say and it's just and i i i, I saw that and i saw yeah and, and just just the sadness yeah the sort of the he really just wanted to talk just for a really short time about how he felt going into space and and bezos just was thinking about something completely different. Yeah, well, Be Bezos is is not um, in the, the, the he's he's uh, rightly edited out of the sequence in the, uh, uh, the in the feature. I mean, it really it gives good space to that moment because it is a moment. Of course, uh, I think many many of us, you know, we've seen Shatner uh, play himself in many contexts, but that was one of the most genuine. Uh, uh, sequences where you really actually got to see his emotional mm. interior and you get quite a lot of that in this film um, that I think must have been one of the things that persuaded Philippe to uh, to give it a shot great well, that's it that's it. so yeah um, you can 
Call Me Bill, hopefully streaming somewhere or, or getting a general release soon. Yeah. Um, shall we continue with the cutting room floor while we're in that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, one that I I was so tempted to include, not least because um, this was, I think, the single largest uh, collection of really interesting adaptations of really interesting uh, SF texts um, that we've ever uh, we've ever had in a uh, in a single issue, but in the end, uh, well, for reasons that will become clear, uh, I couldn't really um, make space for was Suitable Flesh, um, which is a Shudder title that's had uh, limited. Uh, theatrical releases, certainly in the US and in the UK, and I, th- I don't think it's on Shudder yet. I think you'll have to uh, you have to rent it. But this is um, a gender flipped adaptation of Lovecraft's The Thing on the Doorstep, um, one of the uh, sort of uh, uh, B list. Uh, great stories. Um, and uh, it's a Stuart Gordon tribute. Uh, it's a uh, it's a story that uh, that Gordon had been developing as a feature at the uh, at the time he fell ill and uh, is uh, features a lot of the old team who go all the way back to Reanimator and uh, from beyond and the the golden days of Empire Pictures in uh, in the eighties. So it's it's written by Dennis Powley, who of course was the uh, uh, the, the writer on all uh, Gordon's Lovecraft uh, features, and it's done very much. Uh, Barbara Crampton is in it, and. Uh, in, in a major role, uh, and uh, Brian Yusner is involved as well. It's it's got a lot of the gang back together, um, and it's uh, it's taking Lovecraft's story, but also the heritage of Stuart Gordon's interpretation of Lovecraft uh, 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 stories, uh, which is, has always been quite sort of. Uh, uh, balls out and trying to recreate that sensibility in a slightly more kind of uh, 2023 way in a way that that, um, that that Gordon would have been uh, proud of. I, I have I have my own kind of take on Stuart Gordon, who of course did not just do um, uh, uh, Lovecraft adaptations, or that's what he's remembered for, and, uh, uh, mostly in film. I mean, he did, he did you know, stuff like Fortress and Space Truckers along the way, but um, but I was I, th- I think in the end he may be remembered more for his theatre work. He was always very much a, 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 a theatre guy, and his. Uh, um, his his company, um, the Organic Theatre, which I think started out at the University of uh, Wisconsin at Madigan that uh, established itself in Chicago and for which he was basically plucked to make uh, Reanimator. It was kind of the US equivalent. It was the, the, the great sort of foundational SF theatre troupe um, corresponding, I suppose, to Ken Campbell's Science Fiction Theatre of Liverpool in the UK. And he never stopped doing theatre. Uh, all through his life. But obviously he does have this very specific film legacy as the great sort of B-movie interpreter of Lovecraft. And this is very uh, d- direct by the uh, very experienced horror director, uh, Joe Lynch, but with, uh, as I say, a lot of the uh, the old team on it. And uh, the thing that Lynch 
brought to it, uh, which was not part of Gordon's um, uh, early development, was to flip the genders of the characters. So if you know the thing on the doorstep, this is the one, uh, this is the demon possession one where mm-hmm. uh, the, the narrator's best friend uh, uh, is, uh, we would say uh, these days he um, he is seduced into an abusive relationship with this mysterious half insmouth uh, woman who turns out in fact to be the uh, 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 possessed by the spirit of her sorcerer father who is hopping from body to body to keep himself alive and in the story um the, the sort of body hopping uh, spirit kind of uh, increasingly takes possession of the hapless uh, groom's body and uh, Lovecraft obviously has problems about what you would actually do if you're taking over someone's body, and so he just sort of goes off to cult meetings of uh, <laughs> secret societies. Although I, uh, I was, re- I read it again when the film uh, was screening, and I'd forgotten there were actually shoggoths in it. And one of the things I'd rather miss about the film is that there are no shoggoths, and in fact, the whole kind of cosmic horror uh, side of it, which actually gets most of the best passages in the story, aren't really there. It's it's much more. Uh, 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 down to earth, but uh, it does culminate in this uh, this amazing moment where the, the the original inhabitant of the body has to uh, reanimate his corpse after he's been evicted permanently, and that's the thing on the doorstep that turns up and uh, persuades the uh, hero to uh, uh, go and shoot his best friend in the asylum. Um, and so all this has been gender flipped, and so now it's it's uh, Heather Graham and Barbara Crampton as two psychologists. Uh, uh, her colleagues confronted with this. This uh, they're the best psychotherapists, and they're confronted with this patient who seems to be manifesting um, as a dissociative uh, uh, personality, but uh, uh, we know is being uh, possessed by initially. Well, by the, by this uh, centuries-old body-hopping demon that has got into him uh, through his dad, and now is into these two women, and the finale. Um, uh, so, so it goes through a lot of quite ingeniously uh, devised, although not terribly well written, uh, 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 sex scenes uh, where the uh, the demon is kind of hopping between bodies during sex, and uh, it's, it's got some interesting kind of spins on the original uh, premise. Um, but it does. Uh, reinterpret the finale as an action sequence. Uh, in action stage, in fact, I think it's only the exteriors that are the same, but, but, but in the same building that played the same uh, Miskatonic University sanatorium uh, back in Reanimator. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's doing a lot of the Gordonian things, but with this interesting kind of female-centred um, twist to it. And a lot of it is a bit clunky until the finale comes together, which I think was all shot on a single day and is really um, uh, very bold in the way it kind of stages, minds sort of uh, um, 
the, the, the demon hopping between bodies in a shootout, basically, which is a terrific idea for a set piece. Um, but uh, to have written this up would have involved an enormous amount of explaining who Stuart Gordon was and why his his uh, his Lovecraft films in particular are uh, an important tradition that one might want to homage in 2023. But uh, well worth catching. I mean, it does. Uh, I, I, I was thinking for a lot of it, this isn't really uh, doing it, but actually it does it does come together very well at the end. And, and you said that's available to rent, uh, Suitable Flesh is available to rent on, on Shudder. Yes, I, I mean, it, 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 I think it's going to be on Shudder sometime in the new year, but at the moment you can just rent it um, from your uh, yeah, your usual uh, rental services, I think. Hmm. It's on general VOD. Um, okay, and then there's there's one one more got left on the floor yes the other one that bit the dust for uh, for slightly different reasons was the irish uh, film apocalypse clown uh, which uh, <laughs> is not really like anything else um uh, 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 this is uh, this was this i mean this was back in the summer now so it was, it was i think everyone had kind of forgotten about it but it actually deserves uh, 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 checking out so this is a little irish feature uh, funded by the irish tv license fee so presumably uh, essentially made with tv money and and uh, uh, certainly uh, every every euro um, is up there on screen and there aren't very many of them. But okay. this is the this is an Irish um, uh, post-apocalypse, well, an Irish apocalypse comedy uh, centred on uh, a clown funeral. Uh, the clowning community um, is gathered... Uh, in a rural village to to mark the passing of one of their own at the exact moment that uh, there is this this blackout and uh, civilization appears to have gone completely down and so you have um, I mean it's not really about clowns it's about what would happen if the apocalypse were to happen in rural Ireland where uh, of course the thing about Ireland is that there is a big kind of gap between the urban and the rural uh, information transmission rate and and so uh, in in Dublin, where uh, uh, the, the the female lead is a reporter for a something called viral load media (laughs) Uh, it would be much clearer what's going on but out there in the sticks nobody knows whether this really is the apocalypse um, uh, uh, and how much of civilization uh, has uh, uh, survived and so they go into Mad Max mode and uh, take out all their long boiling clown feuds Um, (laughs) and a lot of it I mean the thing that says it is that it is actually really sharply written um, uh, and played actually the the the, the lead is David Earl, who was in, who was uh, uh, not only in, but also co-wrote Brian and Charles last year, um, uh, and has that same, that kind of sad sack personality that uh, works very well as a uh, someone who's spent, whose life has been spent as a clown uh, very unsuccessfully. And there's a lot of good gags about clowns going scary. This is apparently a syndrome that will strike if you um, 
if you clown too much, you turn into Pennywise. And so there's this wonderful supporting character who has gone full scary. Um, uh, and it's, um, uh, you know, it has wonderfully Irish set pieces and Irish jokes about emotional support horses and uh, kind of <laughs> post-apocalyptic um, schlepping across a peat bog. Um, uh, so it is kind of joyous, <laughs> despite being the most low-budget thing ever um, and a, a really stupid idea. <laughs> I think only Irish television would uh, would fund it. The villain has a tank uh, who is who is a uh, uh, a bad clown has a tank labelled Industrial Custard, um, and uh, it's uh, uh, in the end it's more a film about the concept of the of uh, <laughs> the apocalypse as an Irish. Um, as, as it would happen in Ireland, than it is really about clowns, or uh, and it's got this terrible title, which I don't think would really have uh, sold it particularly. But it's it's full of very good jokes and um, uh, worth checking out. Um, uh, it's uh, it's one of these things that is more kind of SF adjacent and ripping off uh, or riffing off rather uh, SF tropes than it is really a kind of proper. Uh, SF film, but mm -hmm. uh, it's, I, I, I had a lot. Of, I had a good time at it. I'm, I'm intrigued by all three of those. Yeah, in, in very different ways. <laughs> but yeah, a viral load. I, I can't quite get over that. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, this is um, very much uh, uh, an emerging from the pandemic um, uh, film, and right, right. it's not really about that. It's. I mean, it is. It is about. Um, uh, what happens if society goes down? I mean, it's, it's, it, this is a, an apocalypse that arises from a, uh, a collapse of um, uh, electronic media, uh, mm -hmm. especially. Um, and the way in which in Ireland that cuts the villages off from the city. You know, the only news that comes through to them is that Garth Brooks, uh, the country singer, is dead. He's uh, supposed to uh, be playing this this big um, uh, uh, concert in Dublin uh, and uh, the nation goes into mourning. We know the apocalypse has arrived when uh, Garth Brooks um, is a victim of the um uh, the, the collapse of civilization. That's interesting. The, also, an intriguing link to to leave the world behind. Uh -huh. with, the, with the sort of the not no not knowing, yeah, sort of not knowing quite the extent of yeah. what's going on, and the, yeah, to the but but without the clowns. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the, the the clowns are are chemical X in this one. Yeah, yeah that's well, I, and also the the peat bog thing. I mean, I I. The, the, I I'm kind of thinking of like Doctor Who and the quarries. I can imagine, I can imagine that peat bogs would be really useful if you're telling all sorts of stories in a sort of SF in Ireland. So yeah, more more post-apocalyptic peat bogs. Well, in particular, yes. If you're if you're trying to, you know, you, yeah, you've got the last. There's some good car, car gags in it. How are we going to fit five of us in this thing? Say five clowns, um, uh, but they're driving across a peat bog, of course, and that's not um, that's not a great way to escape the uh, the, 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 the apocalypse. This is a, it's the kind of film that has a credit for something called James Joyce stunt double. Um, oh wow! Okay. 
Okay, one one for the history books. Um, that's uh, that's great. So so those so those hit the cutting room floor, and then the the um the other thing which you kind of couldn't fit into into mutant popcorn for the issue was all of the many thoughts on 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 poor things. Um, so I, I I think we should probably move to that, right? Yes, well, I mean, this is, of course, uh, one of the films that got kicked into, well, uh, kicked into a December release in North America, but into uh, January uh, 2024 um, elsewhere. So uh, although a lot of people have seen this film by now, it hasn't exactly been a secret. It's been playing all the festivals. There have been uh, the odd uh, uh, public screen. And I think the the verdict is in that this is um, not just one of the genre films, of the year, but one of the films of the year, and will be mm-hmm. uh, coming back and haunting us at uh, award season. But it is also, of course, for interzone uh, readers, um, a hugely important film uh, as probably you know the greatest uh, SF novel to have been adapted, certainly since Dune, um, and uh, it, impossible to write about uh, economically because there is so much, both about the film, which is a very rich and complex film, but also about the novel and about uh, the gap between the two of them that can only really be explained by sort of delving back into Alistair Gray and his relationship with science fiction um, uh, over uh, a near 50-year career. Um, so there's there's a huge amount to say about this film, which is, I think, yeah, it is, it is already taking the world by storm. Um, and uh, it's just nice to have an opportunity to unpack it a little bit uh, uh, further, because as we were saying at the, the, the top of the show, this is this is an intrinsically unfilmable, unfilmable novel, which hasn't stopped. Uh, this is one of the things that's actually got slightly lost, I think, in the narrative around the film. It hadn't stopped um, people from trying to film it almost as soon as it appeared. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the novel came out in uh, 1992, uh, and Grey was at a bit of a, a low point in his career at that time. Um, he had uh, this amazing trio of hits um, at the beginning of the 80s uh, with Lanark and uh, his first collection on likely stories mostly, and then uh, arguably his masterpiece, certainly he always thought so, I think I wouldn't disagree, um, 1982 Janine. Um, and then uh, there was a big um, reaction against his next novel, Something Leather, which was a kind of fix-up of old radio plays with um, uh, rather, as it turned out, rather ill-advisedly spun around the uh, about a, a fetish element which didn't really kind of mesh with the times. Although I think it's, I still think it's a fantastic uh, book. And uh, when he repackaged it later as Glaswegians, I think it, it found a bit more of a uh, sympathetic reception. But he hadn't had a hit uh, for a long time. And then, and then he publishes this novel, uh, which is in many ways an even more kind of deeply Glaswegian novel than, uh, 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 than Lanark, in that it's. Uh, all about kind of local, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's a deeply researched um, uh, local history uh, of 
uh, the the second Scottish Enlightenment in the, uh, the 1860s and 70s, uh, uh, steeped in uh, local um, geography and and uh, uh, and archive stuff, and uh, framed as this nest of voices and forms. Um, uh, uh, and uh, with pastiches within uh, uh, pastiches. But almost immediately it did, um, uh, and he, he, he himself, uh, Gray was always rather dependent on Scottish arts funding, uh, and he got uh, some money to turn it into a screenplay and uh, shopped it around. I mean, he had, he had some producers he worked with uh, in the period who had also tried to uh, 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 get an adaptation of Lanark made, and uh, it just never got off the ground. But it, it, it never, it was never not in development. There was a version in the early two thousands which had uh, Helena Bonham Carter attached as the lead, who would have been absolutely fantastic. Actually, I mean, absolutely perfect casting. Jim Broadbent was going to be uh, the mad scientist character, um, and. Uh, I mean, again, he just couldn't get it made, and then and then um, Yorgos Lanthimos approached him. I think in the in the in uh, the issue I said it was two thousand and nine. It can't possibly have been two thousand and nine because Lanthimos tells this story. I think it must have been more like twenty twelve. Lanthimos tells this story of going to visit Gray um, and uh, uh, Gray saying, "Yes, I, I I got one of my." Uh, I, I found someone who was able to insert my DVD of Dogtooth into the drive so that I could watch it. Uh, so it must have been after the DVD of Dogtooth had come out. Okay. Um, and it, I, a wonderful, classic grey story. Um, uh, I mean, the man was just a kind of walking shambles um, you know, for a kind of Nobel-level genius. He, uh, he did not interact uh, uh, successfully with the world on any level. Um, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, Lanthimos tells the story of how he got basically take, they got taken on a uh, unauthorized escorted walking tour of the locations, uh, clearly with a with a sense uh, that this needed to be shot uh, in Glasgow and to have the Glaswegianness of it um, uh, integral to the film. Um, and you know, in, at the end of it, he, he said, well, okay, I, I, I think you're a crazy person and you, uh, I, I'll entrust you with the, uh, the, uh, with the rights. Um, but of course, the film that's come out of it, has, which has a lot of things going for it, I mean, it's, it, is, it is an amazing film in its own right, is deeply un Glaswegian, and I think Gray would have been horrified at uh, losing that, um, uh, the, 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 that side of it. Um, but in a lot of other ways, it does, it does preserve things that you wouldn't expect to have been uh, preserved about the novel. But, I mean, should I be explaining what it's about? I mean, does every, I mean, not everyone has kind of lived this novel all their life. I, I think so. I feel like it's one of those films where people have, yeah, people have, you, you kind of talked around it and, and, and yeah, maybe, maybe just give people a, yeah, this, this sort of through line. Well, it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's one of these absolute sort of killer premises. Um, uh, uh, it's about a, uh, a, a Glaswegian uh, mad, uh, Victorian mad scientist who rescues a, 
uh, a mystery pregnant suicide from the Clyde and uh, transplants the fetus's brain into the adult woman's body, thereby creating a blank slate adult female who develops from um, uh, the infanthood to adulthood at a phenomenal rate and is completely uncontained by all the various social and gender codes of the age um, and carves out her own story uh, across Europe um, in a uh, kind of feminist palimpsest of uh, the Frankenstein uh, myth in which the, the creature uh, uh, takes ownership of not just their creator, but uh, everyone else they, they come into contact with. And it's a joyous film, a joyous novel. It was um, Gray's first big international hit. You know, he actually, uh, it, it, it did well in North America, which I think has been one of the things which helped get Searchlight uh, funding for it. Um, and... Uh, it's uh, it, it's a great setup, uh, but also a great character, a very iconic uh, uh, a character, who is also, of course, a complete uh, treat for an ambitious actor to to take on. And Emma Stone, who uh, plays the lead in the film version, does a a terrific job of uh, playing the different levels of. Uh, the heroine Bella's um, uh, development from this 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 infant just encountering language for the first time to uh, in the end this uh, uh, masterful uh, uh, um, sort of socialist heroine because socialism uh, and particularly the Scottish strain of socialism was a really big uh, part of the. Um, the, the novel and medicine as a way for uh, the uh, the elite to uh, do something uh, in the world, and all of these are there in the film. They're in a rather kind of reduced form. The thing that that has completely gone is the unreliability of the narration, because the payoff in the novel is that uh, after you've had the um, uh, the main narrative section, which is the um, uh, the uh, memoir published by the male lead character uh, about the heroine, and her, her voice is heard in that in an epistolary uh, form. She then gets to do her memoir about the memoir, um, which completely unpicks it and establishes her rival narrative of what went on. And by the end of it, and and, and the whole thing is framed as a. Um, a clash between Gray himself as the editor of uh, the total assemblage who essentially believes the uh, hero's story about Bella um, and his also real-life uh, friend turned in the novel uh, rival, the archivist, who believes the heroine, heroine story against 
the male authored version that's been uh, 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 written around her. And Gray's original screenplay from 1993 was an absolutely brilliant uh, combination of the two. I mean, he, he invented this new framing uh, uh, device that um, has uh, Bella herself reading the uh, the, 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 the first delivered copies of the memoir and saying preposterous um, <laughs> uh, and giving her live commentary on it. Um, and I really regret the loss of that because the original screenplay, which you can find in Gray's playbook, uh, a Gray playbook from 2009, uh, which I think you can still get. It was a, it was a, I'm just going to cross the room and pull out my copy of it. Um, it was a limited edition of how many copies? Limited of uh, um, 250 signed copies. Um, uh, mine is number 182, but I think you can actually still get it. It never sold terribly well, and I think you can still probably find, uh, pick it up for uh, no, 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 not, not a huge uh, 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 sum of money. And I've always been in love with that version of it, um, and always been in love with the novel. And the the subtractions in the film version are. Uh, one of the things that makes me a little bit, um, uh, I mean, it's, I think I said in the review, it's about sort of uh, 57% as good as, as the book. Um, right. But the book is, is very, very good uh, in, uh, indeed. And um, uh, I miss Glasgow. Um, uh, some, of the, some of the supporting performances are really not that great. Um, the, the Hollywood people they got into... Uh, uh, again, to make it more marketable, um, uh, Mark Ruffalo has had a lot of um, uh, uh, a lot of good uh, reviews because it's certainly uh, a very different role for him. But uh, his his accent completely sinks it, particularly when you hear him doing exactly the same accent straight in the Netflix adaptation of All the Night, All the Light We Cannot See, um, uh, and uh, Willem Dafoe cannot do a I mean, who is the only character in the film with any kind of uh, attempt at a Scottish accent? I mean, that was not one of the things he was put on this earth to attempt. Oh, no. So it's 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 sort of mixed joys. But on the other hand, Lanthimos has brought in all these um, uh, extraordinary filmmaking touches of his own. Um, it's it's set in this. I mean, completely gratuitously, really, in this sort of green screen. A steampunk Vern alternate universe. Um, uh, it's very, it's a very airshipy kind of film, and all the sets and the the backgrounds are utterly gorgeous. Um, uh, doesn't I think quite stick the landing? Uh, they've tried to improve on the ending, which I think was a mistake. Um, and they seem to have mashed up two different endings and not really kind of decided between them. Hmm. But it's still, um, you know, it's, it's, this is a major film uh, of a major novel. Um, Gray himself, oh God, I mean, he was such a... I, I mean, the word that everyone uses of him was, was chaotic. Um, I had a lost weekend with him in uh, 1984, um, uh, his first SF convention, um, uh, 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 Mexicon 2 in, was it Newcastle? I can't remember. Um, this was this convention where he 
uh, where, where, where uh, one of the very ambitious things they were doing was was inviting as guests authors whom everyone, all SF fans were reading, uh, but um, who hadn't really interacted with the SF community. In the previous year, uh, they'd had, uh, famously, um, uh, they'd had Ian Banks along, um, okay. and that was his famous These Are My People moment, where which kind of opened up that that kind of uncolonized space between his forename and his surname persuaded him that uh, dusting off consider Fleabas for print might not actually be professional and reputational seppuku. Um, uh, so they do, they'd done very well the previous year. Um, uh, and this year they had, uh, in 84, they had Gray and Russell Hoban. Um, uh, 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 and uh, Hoban, I think, uh, he published Ridley Walker, which of course was the novel that all the SF people uh, were reading, but uh, he was working on the Medusa frequency at the time. And uh, that was very exciting because um, uh, I, this was the time of my uh, my own kind of uh, a peak obsession with the great um, uh, SF theatre company, Impact Theatre Cooperative. I don't think they thought of themselves as an SF theatre company, but that's what they were. Um, uh, and he, they were collaborating with him um, uh, on what became the Medusa Frequency and their um, uh, landmark production, um, the Carrier Frequency, which was a different iteration of the same um, it was, a, it was kind of a Clark Kubrick um, uh, cross-media uh, uh, collaboration, but uh, but Hoban was not a man made for conventions. I think he was a very mm-hmm. uh, very um, uh, reticent, cautious. Uh, uh, deep thinking uh, guy, and I, I, I sort of sitting down with him and and uh, gushing about uh, uh, the Impact Theatre, and he uh, he said, "Sorry, who are you? How do you know about that?" I mean, I don't think he quite realised what fan uh, was short for. But Gray was a was was a, a different kind of proposition again because um, uh, I remember I, I I was completely obsessed with him at the time, and when he, when he turned. Up, um, uh, you know, I instantly bought his first drink and uh, I told him 1982 Janine was the great Scottish novel, which uh, arguably it was and still is. Um, and of course, you know, he's chronically shy uh, with strangers, and he just kind of stammered thanks. Rod Glass, his biographer, has a story about his first encounter with Grey, where he um, he uh, got a um, a kind of tip off as to what which pubs um, uh, uh, Gray who um, uh, liked his spirits uh, uh, <laughs> was drinking in, and he just accosted him there when he got a kind of mumbled dismissal, and that was that was nearly it. Um, but uh, uh, but I had very much the same kind of experience, you know. He uh, I, I, I bought him a drink, and he kind of stammered his thanks as I was trying to sort of draw him out on his work, um, and he just kind of drank faster and uh, and made his excuses, and so. Um, uh, everyone was rather astonished when he then uh, uh, t- 
transformed almost bodily um, uh, when it came to do his reading, which was a bit from uh, from Lanark, and he became this absolutely uh, stellar, charismatic performer of his own work, uh, doing all the characters, doing all the voices. You see why radio was always a really important theatre, uh, but particularly radio theatre was always an important medium uh, for him. Um, and then um, by the Sunday evening, he was uh, literally sprawled insensible on the floor of the convention hall. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and that was the moment, I think, well, I think we'd already had that moment where uh, uh, we all realised that the kind of level of high functioning borderline alcoholism that is the normal case, or certainly then was the normal case of most SF authors, um, uh, was very different from uh, the full-on alcoholism of uh, uh, someone who had never attended a convention before, an author with a significant drink problem, suddenly plunged into the culture of unlimited free drinks from people who think, or in this case, know that you're a genius mm. and just want to buy you drinks for an entire weekend. So that was his lost weekend in fandom. And I don't know if he ever went to another convention, um, but we saw three different Al Alistair Greys that weekend. And, uh, and you know, they were all um, very much um, uh, versions of the man he always was. Um, uh, an amazing writer, but also <laughs> an utterly shambolic human being. Right. Yeah, that's a that's that's a great story. Um, just just digressing slightly, you mentioned the the Ian Banks thing the year before. Just can you go into that a bit more? Because I I think that's super interesting. Oh yeah, Banks. Banks had published was it three novels? He'd done. Um, he published uh, the Wasp Factory, mm -hmm. Walking on Glass, and the Bridge. I think by uh, had the Bridge come out then. Uh, but uh, he was. I mean, right from the Wasp Factory. Factory onwards, he was someone who all the SF fans were reading. I mean, we, we, I think we recognised a kindred spirit in him long before he knew there was a kindred spirit in us. And mm. I wasn't at, at that convention, but uh, that was in 1983 where he was just invited because he was someone who uh, a lot of fans really wanted to meet and uh, uh, cultivate the kind of relationship with that only really existed in SF fandom. And he in instantly got it. And he had, of course, been writing uh, uh, the, you know, what became the culture novels um, uh, on the side and never thought, I think, really of uh, uh, publishing them um, uh, once he had become, you know, a, a very significant um, uh, voice in, in in New British fiction, um, and uh, he was he just clicked with the SF community and with the way that um, space opera was seen as a kind of serious um, art form, um, uh, and it it transformed his career. I mean, it bifurcated mm. his career in, in many ways, but that was the start of it. And he's, he talked a lot about this over the years. Um, uh, he was never um, uh, uh, um, backward about giving credit to fandom for introducing him to the possibility of being simultaneously um, uh, a genre writer and uh, a writer for people who would never... Um, uh, pick up use of weapons um, mm. in a billion years. 
Yeah, two two really important Scottish writers right there. Yeah. Wow, that's a okay. So that that's a huge amount there. Um, where where are we? Where where do we go next? We well, we're looking ahead. We we, we looked a lot at twenty twenty three, and then this, uh, yeah, that's coming out at the beginning of next year in some places. But what else? Yes. What else is on the way? Well, there's a lot of stuff that actually was in the uh, the, the 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 kind of festival round that I was trying to write up in <laughs> two nine six that still isn't out. So a lot of things that. Uh, um, I mean, poor things is the big one, and of course, it's poor things rather than poor things rhyming with poor poor patrol. Because you know, it has to be very much a uh, uh, you know, it, it is a Glaswegian um, uh, 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 title. Um, but I mean, there's uh, of things coming up out imminently that were in that issue. We still, I mean, uh, the the boy in the heron, of course, the Miyazaki is coming out next week, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, amazing film i mean again one of those ones i could actually sort of talk about for an hour um it's both absolutely essential uh, miyazaki and and completely minor um it, it there are a lot of things which are the most miyazaki ever and uh other things where you're expecting it to do trademark Miyazaki things and it simply doesn't it simply doesn't uh, mm-hmm. try. so it doesn't really it, it doesn't have the the usual kind of emotional arc it doesn't have a banger soundtrack um, uh, but it's full of obsessions it's really wild and out there and it's his definitive fusion of his kind of autobiographical um, uh, uh, sort of World War Two roots, um, uh, including his obsession with with fighter planes, um, uh, and the uh, insane stream of consciousness fantasy, um, and the way it segues between the two is really bold. And at the same time, it is a film about mortality and succession, and. Uh, uh, on some level encodes the current state of Studio Ghibli. Uh, so it's, uh, I mean, that, 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 one, that one's about to hit us. Uh, poor things coming out uh, uh, fast behind. One to look out for again, I think in January is uh, the end we start from, the adaptation of uh, Megan Hunter's novel. Um, very interesting novel, very kind of almost a sort of Ballardian condensed novel um, about a, uh, which defamiliarizes the uh, familiar, uh, cozy uh, catastrophe British apocalypse um, uh, uh, novel. Very beautifully done, fantastic. Uh, Anchoring lead performance by uh, by Jodie Comer, um, uh, a film that I've been thinking about almost more than any other um, uh, uh, in um, uh, r- r- recent weeks. Um, uh, the amazing uh, 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 French film, uh, The Beast, Bertrand. Uh, Bonello's uh, adaptation of the Henry James novella *The Beast in the Jungle*, which but but mm-hmm. but but SF, um, but not <laughs> okay. just SF. SF at least two or three different kinds of SF because there's a kind of poor things steampunk uh, period uh, uh, layer to it. There's a f- uh, future kind of um uh, quasi scientological um uh past lives 
a psychotherapy bit and uh, the most amazing segment actually and the one which uh, you don't realize you've been watching in the intercop timelines until it actually happens um, is the one set in a kind of near present um, uh, in LA uh, around the film industry itself. Um, completely extraordinary film. I think I need to watch it. This is the one, if you remember, uh, you had to print the QR code for the credits because it's decided that credits are to last century. Yeah, because it had that that extra sequence. Yeah, and and you get a, you get a bonus scene if you if you uh, overcome all your conditioning and whip out your phone and snap the uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the QR code before it disappears off screen. But uh, um, uh, completely uh, extraordinary film. It's been a great year for French SF. I mean, I thought I would ne- I would not see uh, a better film all year than The Five Devils, which would be a great kind of. Uh, how do you describe it? The um, uh, the 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 the, the nine year old hyperosmic witch who time slips um, uh, in a uh, sort of intergenerational queer uh, uh, romance uh, to total eclipse of the heart. Um, hmm. uh, but actually, I mean, there was uh, there was uh, there was the beast. There was. Um, uh, the Animal Kingdom, which I think doesn't yet have international uh, releases lined up, but this is the great sort of um, uh, uh, metamorphosis apocalypse where everyone's slowly turning into animals. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and you've got a kind of adult and it's a, it's, it's a father-son uh, drama, uh, but you've got a kind of adult plot and a, and a, a teenage coming-of-age plot where everyone is kind of terrified of being ostracised as, uh, uh, as they... Uh, start to lose their humanity and um, embark on this kind of balladian journey into what may be the next state of humanity or uh, may leave us behind uh, in other ways. So there was, that, mm-hmm. that's still to come. One that, again, was in the last issue that I thought, I mean, I think everyone who sees it just falls in love with is Molly and Max in the Future, which is, I was thinking afterwards, I didn't say this at the time, but um, it's kind of like a live action episode of Futurama. Um, it's doing all these sort of crazy casual deployments of SF tropes um, mm. and just bunging SF uh, you know, deep science fictional gags about um, uh, you know, uh, multiverses and mm-hmm. interdimensional beings and uh, uh, a, a sort of space operatic interplanetary um, uh, romance into a remake of when Harry, a very um, straight ahead remake of when Harry met Sally. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of spanning uh, years um, in the, the lives of these couples who, who are having this on off romance that, and it's very, very cheap. It's very, it's very kind of. Uh, Alphaville style, um, low budget um, uh, SF with a lot of uh, uh, pointedly, hilariously uh, uh, cheap effects that nevertheless are very heavily leaned into. So there are all these these wonderful things that haven't, uh, um, uh, uh, I, I think in some cases haven't even got uh, distribution. I think last mm-hmm. time we were talking about how bleak 2024 was looking with the 
colossal lineup of studio sequels. Um, Twenty twenty four now is the year without a proper. Marvel film, for example, we've got Deadpool 3 is the only sort of official MCU uh, film, and that's not really full on MCU because it's a legacy of the Foxverse and has been, uh, and, and you know, it's going to have Hugh Jackman's Wolverine in it. Um, so, very much a kind of legacy Foxverse before it becomes full MCU. Uh, uh, product and then all the other Marvel films are the bloody Sony Spider Verse. We've got three of these now because they kicked Craven the Hunter. So as well as the Venom sequel coming up, I think in the autumn, uh, 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 we've got Madam Web uh, barreling down on us in uh, 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 in February. So it's going to be a very strange year for uh, superhero cinema. It's coming at a time, of course, when both. Disney and Warners in their completely different ways have been going through radical changes, radical changes in business strategy, um, uh, Disney rethinking the relationship between the Disney Plus series and the MCU, uh, particularly after the Marvels tanked, I think undeservedly because you know it, it had a lot going for it, but uh, clearly did not uh, uh, connect with audiences. It expected you to care about Ms. Marvel, um, which I thought was rather good, and Cree mm-hmm. uh, uh, Skrull uh, Wars, which um, uh, I think... Uh, there was less enthusiasm for, and these were things that have been stoked by the Disney Plus series. But uh, but then you've got Warner's kind of cancelling, uh, you know, dumping already completed films, dumping their Batgirl. Another, of course, great loss to Glaswegian cinema. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, 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 they, they they tried to dump the Coyote versus Acme, um, the kind of Roger Rabbit style uh, courtroom drama about Wiley Coyote suing. Um, uh, Acme for delivering all this faulty equipment um, that completely fails to um, uh, to, ca- to catch the roadrunner and um, uh, and then there was an outcry and they reinstated it. Uh, uh, but you know that again, a finished film that uh, nearly uh, got uh, concrete booted and thrown in the Clyde. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, twenty twenty four is going to be an, an odd mix. There are, we've got a you know a lot of sequels, a um, lot of um, uh, I think possibly um, uh, franchise products that maybe pass their sell by, but also a lot of really interesting indie stuff. And in amidst it all, um, there are some things that. In, Nobody can wait to see. You know, we've got Dune Part Two. We've got Furiosa. Uh, hard to see how those are not going to be uh, a great kind of uh, big budget auteur stonkers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, so a lot to look forward to. I should say, of course, you know, I mean, in the short term, uh, because the next issue, I think, will be coming out in January. So um, there is some quite interesting, already some quite interesting end of year stuff that hasn't, obviously, uh, hadn't screened at the time of uh, uh, the last issue. But um, one of the interesting things about, I mean, I was expecting this to be a very boring Christmas. You know, we're Mm. going to get an Aquaman and... uh, 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 and uh, who th- whoever thought that a Wonka prequel would be interesting, um, but actually 
um, uh, the, 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 the franchise stuff that's been uh, coming out uh, for the Christmas season uh, is all, well, so far, I haven't seen the Aquaman, but it's all proving unexpectedly interesting. We've got Godzilla Minus One, which uh, is, I think, one of the great Godzilla films. Um, uh, uh, and the Wonka uh, film, which has come out uh, internationally, but not yet in North America, uh, is... Uh, uh, a really interesting. I mean, it plays very well in the UK. It's a it's, very, it's a very interesting film about what um, uh, uh, the voice of the increasingly problematic uh, Roald Dahl needs to do and what it can say to the world of uh, 2023, as well as being a film about all the things that chocolate can signify. Um, uh, about which I just thought very, very um, uh, uh, deeply. Um, uh, so there's um, and, and Disney's Wish, which you know is the film about um, uh, made by Disney's A team of Jennifer Lee and Chris Buck about um, uh, what uh, Disney means and the entire century-long Disney heritage and the fact that the film has not, I think, um, really delivered on its ambitions doesn't stop it being an extremely interesting, uh, uh, for once overt, reflection by Disney uh, on itself. Um, so lots of, um, um, lots of interesting stuff, even in the, the blockbuster space. Mm -hmm. and, and that's going to be, yeah, that's going to be an Interzone 297, which is coming out in January. And uh, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you as well. There was a couple of, in in a couple of the the pods where we've spoken. You you've talked about Chinese cinema, and you talked about um, you know through the uh, sort of seeing it and the experience of seeing it. And I wonder if you you know how how was twenty twenty three in you know in terms of yeah Chinese cinema in London. Well, yes, because uh, London is one of the the, the 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 few places in the UK where big Chinese releases do get uh, a proper theatrical airing, sometimes in really quite big screens, um, and uh, so you can watch them with a, a, a Chinese audience. And uh, I I remember this last year. With Moon Man, which I still think you know, we, we, we talked about, I think, on an earlier podcast, and is a, uh, although it never, it never got into uh, an issue, and this is kind of a, a a parody for the Chinese audience of um, uh, Chinese blockbuster cinema, um, and particularly, I think, the original Wandering Earth, which, of course, most people internationally saw on Netflix um, rather than uh, in cinemas. But um, this has been a, uh, a I mean, it has. Been a remarkable year for Chinese SF, um, and uh, seeing things like Wandering Earth Two or Creation of the Gods um, with uh, basically audiences of Chinese students um, in an absolutely packed, uh, you know, first weekend uh, uh, screening gives you a kind of appreciation for not only how. Uh, self-confident I think Chinese cinema is in finding its own audience and not really kind of needing to dance to uh, uh, the Hollywood uh, tune but also uh, for the the, the kind of distinctness of its its narrative values, its its 
thespian values, actually. There's a kind of uh, performance which the great Chinese stars are really good at uh, giving, which oscillates in uh, very disconcerting ways for Western audiences between goofiness and uh, full-on drama. Um, and uh, the production values are uh, getting very high these days. They're still, they're still, <laughs> the quality of Chinese CGI often looks a bit shonky by Western standards, but uh, uh, they, uh, they, 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 uh, they, they, they know how to throw money at uh, productions and occasionally you get these weird kind of hybrids. I thought Meg Two, of course, you know the Ben Wheatley Meg sequel, which is basically a film for the Chinese market, uh, 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 with all the, the the things that Chinese uh, audiences like, like three D, which never died um, uh, in China uh, and has continued to be an important part of blockbuster aesthetics. All these things um, are completely sort of uncompromisingly there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, um, and uh, so it's been a really interesting year for watching what's happening in Chinese cinema with an expat audience that is kind of getting the jokes and is attuned to this rather different kind of cinematic grammar. I'm not sure that it's really kind of colonizing Hollywood in the way that it was, say, five years ago, when there was a real concern with trying to make films which play to uh, uh, things like the Transformers films uh, mm -hmm. were very big on this, that play to the, uh, the Chinese market. The thing about China that I think everyone has now realized is that while uh, a Western film can be very successful, there if it gets a release, it's very difficult to get the money out. So you don't really make much in the way of profits on a Chinese release. And so I think it's not really part of the business model these days in the way that it was, which means that the kind of native Chinese um, cinematic voices are starting to um, uh, they, they, you know, sustain themselves really on, on playing to the domestic and expat, and expat uh, audiences, which I, I can't help feeling is ultimately a good thing. Um, uh, in the last issue, I talked about the um, amazing 3D animation Deep Sea, uh, which uh, I think will get um, an international release. See it in 3D if you, uh, ideally in IMAX uh, 3D. Um, uh, watch the trailer and you'll get a sense of what the, the best of it is like. I mean, that uh, is very much the product of a um, uh, an animation tradition uh, that has grown up alongside 3D and is thinking about how traditional um, uh, artisanal ways of creating images, uh, particularly through paint textures and brushstrokes could have um, uh, something to say to the grammar of uh, 3D IMAX cinema. Um, uh, really uh, extraordinary stuff, I think. Yeah, well, that's... And, and, and it all, sort of just... Um, just th th yeah, thinking about sort of cinema from around the world, there's also... Yeah, there, there was uh, Plan 75, which I think was one of the... <laughs> The kind of, yeah one of yeah. the one of the best things probably if not the sort of best sort of 
just sort of as a complete film i mean it kind of yeah very very bleak but yeah for me that was that was a real highlight and um absolutely yeah. one of the films of the year yes um for those uh just joining us this is the japanese uh, film about uh uh, uh, uh aside mm -hmm. uh, about a uh, collectively um uh, uh government um a managed program of um uh, euthanasia for the over 75s and uh it's a multi-lead film where a bunch of characters uh find themselves uh with, with very different stories figures from different generations find themselves caught up in this uh initially benign sounding but increasingly very very darkened uh, uh, dystopian system uh, which uh, uh, provides amongst other things a showcase for some veteran uh, Japanese performers to give the performance of a lifetime. Um, absolutely wonderful film. It's been a great year for Japanese cinema generally, actually. I mean, that was um, uh, 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 probably the highlight, but uh, uh, Godzilla Minus One is uh, um, certainly a, 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 another um, uh, of the films of the year. Um, there have been... Um, uh, the, 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 there's, there's been some great stuff in anime as well. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Really, I mean, and you know, it's, it's it's a year we had a Miyazaki. Um, yeah, uh, we're not going to uh, get many more of those. No, I mean, I mean, this time is the last one. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he's uh, he's been saying that for the last twenty years. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, this one. Uh, well, you know, it's ten years since his last. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's hard to see him doing another feature. I could easily see him doing more. I don't know, Ghibli Museum. Shorts. Uh, um, I finally got to see my neighbour Totoro. We uh, uh, we got to see the stage version of that a couple of weeks ago. Oh, how how was it? It's fantastic. I mean, it's. Uh, I hope it uh, it runs and runs. It's uh, um, uh, very much um, uh, a celebration of the soundtrack, amongst other things, but also um, a film for people. Sorry, a play, a, a production for. Um, people who uh, have uh, <laughs> have seen uh, the film a lot of times um, okay. and are wondering how on earth they are going to do in live action with puppetry some of the stuff that is uh, so quintessential about the uh, about the film and uh, and it starts with the opening credits um, they, they 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 do the uh, the opening titles uh, live. Um, oh, really? Uh, oh, but also, they they have done wonderful work with the with the uh, with the score, um, and it is um, the the, the, the Hisaishi, um soundtrack, which is absolutely wall to wall bangers. I mean, it is the most still, I think, the the greatest of all the um, the Miyazaki soundtracks, uh, or the greatest of all Hisaishi's uh, uh, soundtracks. It uh, um, it has been been very beautifully woven together with the themes sort of quoting one another and weaving um, out of one another in a properly kind of full-on, uh, uh, almost kind of fugal uh, uh, score. And uh, uh, I don't think this is a spoiler. The, uh, um, the 
sex of the cat bus has been faithfully preserved. Um, <laughs> one of the things one notices from the um, uh, from, from repeat viewings uh, that uh, uh, is discreetly present and um, unmissable in the stage show. Wonderful. That's 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 a. Uh... That's just, it's good to know and, and a good place to a good place maybe to wrap things up. <laughs> we probably should, shouldn't we? If anyone's still listening to this, go to bed. Get a life. What are you still doing here? <laughs> well, yeah. The, um, thank you very, very much, Nick, for coming on again. And, and, and I mean, this has been like a, a bumper, a bumper show. So I'm looking forward to to getting it out and i'm looking forward to reading the next mutant popcorn um if if you haven't already subscribed to interzone you can do that at interzone.press um and the next issue is out i think i think it's the 15th of january if, if, if my dates are right so yeah yeah look out for that early in 2024 fantastic well thanks so much for having me again um and i'll uh, we'll do this again in um, in another year. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Looking forward to it. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Gareth.